week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1999, Jan Ulrich abandoned the Tour de Suisse with knee pain. Ulrich announced himself on the world stage at the 1993 World Championships in Oslo. While Lance Armstrong was busy winning the professional race, Ulrich showed his promise by winning the amateur edition. It would be three more years before the young German made his Grand Tour debut at the 1996 Tour de France, where he finished second behind teammate Bjarne Ries. He usurped his Danish teammate the following year by winning the Tour de France. He was the youngest winner since the prodigious Laurent Fignon won his first Tour in 1983. With Miguel Indrain retired, the stage was set for Ulrich to begin his own Tour-winning dynasty. But it never came to pass, and ultimately he was to finish in second place in the world's biggest race five times. This is even more than the eternal second Raymond Poulidor, who actually only finished second three times. Only Joop Zutemelk has finished second at the Tour more times than Jan Ulrich. In 1998, Ulrich made it a hat-trick of podium places and a hat-trick of young riders jerseys when he came second once again, this time to a rampant Marco Pantani. As the Tour approached in 1999, Pantani was still dealing with the aftermath of his expulsion from the Giro d'Italia just before he was about to win it for the second year in a row. Regardless, Pantani had always maintained that he would not start the 1999 Tour de France anyway because the route simply didn't suit him. The stage was once again set for Ulrich to take the reins at the Tour de France, but an innocuous fall on stage 3 of the Tour of Germany put paid to any chances Ulrich had of going for a second Tour de France win. With just 25 kilometres to go of the stage, Ulrich became entangled with his teammate Udo Boltz and came down hard. The telecom team manager Rudy Pevenage said at the time, Jan needed stitches to his head wound, but it's not serious. We can't say yet how long he will have to rest. But it was serious, as Ulrich had also done serious damage to his knee. Although he abandoned the tour of Germany, he began training immediately, even though he was no longer part of the race. This exacerbated the injury. Slowly, Ulrich began to realise all was not right and began to complain about the injury. By the time he was racing in the Tour de Suisse, just weeks before the start of the tour, he said that climbing mountains was particularly painful. After just 75 kilometres of stage two of the Tour de Suisse, Ulrich abandoned and with him went all hopes of participation in the Tour. In a Tour de France which had no former winners present for the first time since the first post-war Tour in 1947, Lance Armstrong took advantage and began his own Tour winning dynasty. Jan Ulrich would never win the Tour de France again. Uh, welcome to This Week in Cycling History, a show which routinely reaches into the trouser pocket of the past and separates the meddlesome underwear of fiction from the fretful pubic hair of fact. My name is Scott. And I'm Gillian. Uh, John, in case you haven't heard, is currently receiving bed baths from women whom he imagines in his morphine-addled state are blonde Swedish goddesses, but are probably in fact 26 stone bruisers from Selkirk. Anyway, a speedy recovery to you, John. So we heard Killian talk there about uh, Jan Ulrich abandoning the Tour de Suisse in 1999, and of course the implications that this had for the 99 Tour de France. Killian, it's become somewhat of a, a mythical tour that one so much of, uh, of what happened across the the next 10 years can be traced back to to that tour yeah i, I suppose it can a little bit obviously because lance armstrong won and he, he subsequently did what he did and uh, I, I mean it's 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 very hard to look back and and make make any sort of judgment on what might have happened if ulrich was in that tour but like you say it was the starting point and uh, I suppose it's just it, it it's relevant now because it's kind of happened to Andy Schleck as well. You know, he he is he um 
I was about to say he he's the favorite. He was the favorite for the tour, but he's probably not now with Wiggins and Evans. Um, he 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 has managed through his own bad form and through I don't know maybe a, a PR move by Radio Shack to make himself not the the main t- tour favorite. But uh, besides the fact, I mean he he uh, he's not going to be there now in July, and this tour it does kind of have the, this upcoming Tour de France. It does have this feeling of this one of these transitional tours where um, there is no overwhelming favourite. I mean, there is a former winner, Cadell Evans is there, but I, I, I think, I don't think anybody got the sense last year when Evans won that it was the start of, of any sort of uh, dynasty. Yeah. That he was about to go on and win four or five. I mean, he's just, he's, he's you know, he's 34 or, or he's, or maybe he's 35. Anyway, he's in his mid-30s and, you know, he, he's more of a Carlos Sastre that is, has managed to finally win the tour towards the end of his career. So there, and obviously Contador is banned as well. So there is this openness to the tour for the first time in a, in a while, I would say. Uh, well, maybe since two thousand and eight, when Contador was banned for the <laughs> for the first of many times. Yeah, you kind but, of got that, that feeling once Armstrong came to well, what we thought was going to be the end of his career. That oh, right, there's a, a chance for someone else to either assert the dominance, and everyone thought it was going to be Contador. But as you say, you know, he was banned at that point, and we still look to Contador to string together. That that dynasty, but he's he's had a very odd career, really, when you think about it thus far, uh, Alberto Contador. Oh, he he's been either suspended or retroactively expunged from more tours to France than he hasn't, hmm. which is just it's desperate, you know. It's a phenomenal statistic when you when you same. yeah, it's a phenomenal statistic when you think about it, you know. Uh, it, it, it's very bad, but 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 I mean these transitional tours they have the the potential to be much more exciting than any others. You know, like the, um, the 2008 tour was great because I mean there was just so many favourites and no outstanding favourites, and uh, it, it it was really really fascinating, M- much more fascinating to say than you know Armstrong's wins from 2000 to 2002 in particular mm. were quite. Monopolies. Yeah, and uh, you know, looking back, there there were more transitional tours, like in 1987, for instance, that there was no real outstanding favorite there with Le Mans gone and Fignon injured, and and uh, it's just it's just very exciting. It's terrible for Schleck, um, but it, it is I feel going to be an exciting Tour de France. But another thing to say as well is that um, uh, Jan Ulrich used to get a lot of stick for being overweight in the winter, and rightly so. I mean, he he kind of spent most of the year losing his winter weight in time for the tour. And uh, Andy Schleck doesn't, you know, I don't think he puts on a lot of weight in the winter, but you do get the sense that um, he, he doesn't care about any other race except the tour. And all he's doing is is um, riding around getting the miles under his legs before he finally reaches the tour. And uh, Ulrich kind of did the same. But uh, the reason he crashed in that Tour de Suisse, I read yesterday that um, w- w- one of the theories is that he put on his usual weight over the winter and he was kind of panicking um, because he was still quite overweight in June w- with the tour to come in, in a few weeks. So he had really, really reduced the amount of food that he was eating. And it was said that he, he was only actually eating two energy bars a day. Oh, my during God. That tour. And in the run up to it, because he needed to shed. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was as, as much as eight or 10 kilos. Mm. Maybe, maybe that's going a bit forward, but it was a, a good number of kilos. So the story goes that he, he hadn't eaten properly for this tour de Suisse. And that he ha- he was just going around this race and he was really lightheaded because he just didn't have enough sustenance in him. And for that reason, or or 
that was a contributory factor to the fact that he lost concentration and touched wheels and crashed and that that's that that's why why it happened was because he had like in in the first place put on too much weight and uh, and he missed the 1992 Tour de France <laughs> which is I know I know we joke about the fact that he he does put on or he had put on mm. this weight over winter but uh it's uh, I mean it did have serious repercussion repercussions for his whole career well, absolutely. You you said you know he would he would never win a tour again, and and I remember I remember seeing pictures come out in you know the early early spring or, or possibly even earlier than that. I can't remember whether it was ninety nine or, or possibly later. But you do everyone remembers those pictures of Jan sitting you know in in some keller somewhere, downing yeah. the beer and and the German sausage. And but it's it's absolutely fascinating to to actually link it to. You know the the fact that he he was trying so desperately to shed the weight that he didn't feed himself enough to to have the proper you know energy requirements and and the concentration to to stay out of trouble on the road, which had massive consequences not only for for that year but for the rest of his career really. Um, yeah, and again, just to link it back to the to the Schlecks, I mean, I know they, they don't appear to physically put on a lot of weight um over the winter that they're they seem very slight gangly lads a lot of the time but uh i i know they do have this fondness for like mcdonald's for instance apparently frank schleck loves eating mcdonald's i mean that's that's crazy for mm. for a, a guy who wants to be at the top of the sport and you know schleck and andy schleck i mean he has won in inverted commas the tour de france now in 2010 but you do get the feeling that uh he, he's maybe he won't win another one you, you know yeah, I mean, we've... He's just for various reasons. Yeah. yeah, John and I have talked, you know, ad nauseum, really, at the fact that, that Andy seems to... You know, he feels that he deserves to win the Tour. And, and it's really interesting putting both him and Armstrong in, in the same sentence because you had this, for good or for ill, with Lance Armstrong, that there was a laser-like focus on the Tour to the absolute exclusion of everything else the entire year which made him so driven yeah. and so determined to to win at all costs. Whereas you kind of feel with Andy Schleck that, yeah, he's got the same. He's got this laser-like focus on the tour and nothing else. But to the detriment of him actually winning it, he you know he feels that he ought to win the tour rather than I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to win the tour. Um, yeah, like I know Armstrong, he, he is kind of, uh, he, he gets it, he gets a bad rap or whatever for only focusing on the tour, but he did win a lot of other races as, you know, they were preparation races like the Dauphiné. The, the Dauphiné, yeah, yeah. All these are, are the circuit de la Sarte used to race as well. I mean, but he did win them mm. from time to time. And I, I know I put up a tweet there yesterday that uh, Mark Cavendish has now won the same amount of stage races as Andy Schleck, <laughs> which is which is one. <laughs> you know, Andy Schleck has only ever won one stage race, and that yeah. was the, the tour that he didn't even really win. Uh, you know, for for one of the greatest, the best stage racers in the world, I mean, he's never really won a stage race. I mean, it's just, it's kind of laughable that he expects to turn up in July and and beat everybody, having having not spent any time winning for mm-hmm. the whole year. And I I don't know, may, maybe the whole, uh, may, maybe he did suffer from this this panic that Ul- Ulrich went through and uh, you know trying to lose weight. Maybe again, it's not Schleck trying to lose weight. Maybe it's just trying to gain fitness. But maybe that did uh, have have a, was a factor in the Tour de Suisse when you know he crashed in the time trial and 
I, I don't know, maybe maybe he was panicking in the back of his mind. He felt he needed to go harder than he probably would have otherwise. And and uh, and this is what caused him to crash and, and, and subsequently made a missed tour. I don't know, I'm guessing, but I mean, it, it, uh, it wouldn't be a surprise. Mm. I mean, I think there's a whole load of contributing factors uh, into to Andy Schleck. And I think it's weird with, with Jan Ulrich, it was... His physical health, you know, he's putting on weight. I think with Andy, it's it's his mental health that that's an issue. He doesn't seem to want to, like you said, neither of the brothers seem to want to do the work in the winter and do the work across the spring to get not only race miles in their legs, but winning miles in their legs as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre analogy when you think about putting Jan Ulrich and Andy Schleck together as as examples of how not to approach your 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 winter and your early spring but when you see the the, the similarities it's it's really interesting uh, shall we move on to to your next piece in 2001 cadell evans won his first ever road race outside of australia evans began life as a mountain biker and he was very successful he had finished on the podium of the under 19 and the under 23 mountain bike world championships and he won the mountain bike world cup in 1998 aged just 21 The following year, he also began to compete on the road, and he took his first ever road victory at the Tour of Tasmania while retaining his mountain bike World Cup title. But in 2001, he won the Österreich Rundfahrt, otherwise known as the Tour of Austria, taking a mountain stage victory along the way, which he won by attacking. He followed this up with victory in the Brixia Tour, and it soon became clear that his future belonged on the road. He spoke in 2002 about his transition from mountain bike to road. If I'd gone on trying to ride both, I'd have been spreading myself rather thin. I was constantly changing my training. This way, I just concentrate on one area of the sport. Watching Miguel Indurain win his first Tour de France in 1991 was what got me into cycling in the first place. So perhaps what planted the seed of my decision to go in for road racing now actually happened a long time ago. Also, I've been a mountain biker for seven years, so it made sense in both careers. If I was going to go, it had to be at this age. In his first full season on the road in 2002, Evans almost won the Giro. He became the first ever Australian to wear the Malia Rosa, and he did so with just four days to go until the finish in Milan. But the following day, Evans bonked horribly and lost a bucket of time, eventually finishing the race in 14th place, over 15 minutes back. But the transition had been made. Evans was no longer a mountain biker. He had left the dirt behind and was now a fully-fledged road racer. Interestingly, he is not the most recent winner of a Grand Tour who was an ex-mountain biker, as Ryder Hegedal, the recent Giro winner, also began life as a mountain biker. Both Evans and Hegedal have had slow-burning careers, where they have steadily improved year after year and have had to wait until their 30s to taste their best successes as road riders. Evans echoed this steady progression when speaking, again back in 2002, about riding his first Tour de France. 2002 is my first full season as a pro, so to do the Tour would be asking a bit too much. It's better to build up to these things slowly and surely rather than get thrown in at the deep end. So speaking of um, getting your first win under your belt, you know, we were talking before there about Andy Schleck and and your piece there, Killian, was about Cadell Evans winning his his first major road race outside of Australia. Yeah, I I just I found it really interesting that Cadell Evans said that he... Uh, became a, a, a cyclist in the first place because he watched Miguel Indurain win the 1991 Tour de France. And uh, Miguel Indurain always gets labelled as this tour winner who based his wins on the time trials and uh, defended in the mountains and didn't really attack. But I, I don't actually think that's true. Indurain did attack a few times during his tour wins, 
one of the most famous ones was in 1995 when he took Johan Bernil with him on what was wasn't even a mountain stage; it was a transitional stage. And uh, you know, he gained a couple of minutes on his rivals and based that that tour win on one of those all-out attacks. So I think it's unfair for people to look back on Indrain and say that he never attacks. And I think the same could be said for Evans. There, you know, the way Evans based um, based his tour winning performance on was, you know, being very solid in the time trials and defending in the mountains. But uh, I mean, he, ha- he has attacked, uh, you know, he gets this label for for never attacking. But I mean, he attacked for his world's road race win. He was uh, he, he was the first rider to, to follow Philippe Gilbert on stage one in the Tour de France. He kind of attacked it. He was uh, he was never out of the top four, I think, in that Tour de France. And he was just always up the front. And even on the stages to Abduez, I mean, I don't think you'd say that he, he he attacked, but he was certainly on the front being aggressive. He wasn't just wheel sucking, which is maybe the, the label that he has is as a wheel sucker. But I think it's very unfair. I just thought it was interesting that he himself almost himself on, on Miguel Indurain. Mm. I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right. I, I do remember Indurain. I remember Phil Liggett's voice ringing in my ears just as you were talking there, um, talking about uh, Miguel Indurain and it was not that kind of Robert Miller, you know, Alberto Contador blistering attack. It was just this steady, brutal increase in in the tempo, uh, and uh, and his speed going up any given climb that just shed riders off the back. And it was very impressive to watch uh, to begin with. But kind of like Armstrong and the U.S. Postal Train, you kind of felt that. It was the same tactic over and over again, which kind of made the races slightly boring. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that Indurain had a certain type of attack to him. It just wasn't that explosive attack that we're used to seeing from from the true mountain climbers, the true goats of of the of the peloton. And Evans is exactly the same. He, you know, John says he's got a big diesel engine. He doesn't he doesn't have this brutal acceleration. He has that that. The ability just to either shed riders off the back or indeed hang on enough and, and claw his way back to anybody that does sprint off the front on, on any given climb. And I, I think as fans, it's easier to uh, appreciate and cheer for these riders who are willing to uh, just put in these massive all-out attacks, which can can sometimes fail spectacularly as well. I mean, for instance, say if Cadell Evans now doesn't win the Tour or Bradley Wiggins this year, I, like, I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where they completely capitulate, you know, because they don't go out on a limb and risk everything with these massive attacks. Yeah. It'll either just be... It'll just be that they went up the climb a little bit slower than they had hoped for. I don't think there's going to be this spectacular failure. And as fans, it's much easier to get on board with, say, Marco Pantani attacking from 50 kilometers out or or, or recently Thomas de Gent's um, exploits in the Giro. I mean, that was fantastic mm. to watch. And uh, but it could have easily just just it could have easily failed. And, and you know, he mightn't have made it to the podium. He might have dropped out of the top. 10 altogether by bonking completely. And uh, it's just it's much more exciting to watch these riders uh, make these big attacks and sometimes fail. But, you know, a lot of the time and depending on what type of rider you are, it's not the clever thing to do. It, it, it's it's exciting, but it's, you know, maybe maybe it's not the clever thing to do. And I think, uh, you know, Wiggins especially and Evans, the pair of them, they're basing their tour on really, really clever, conservative riding that's that's 
ho- hopefully is going to just steadily grind their way to the win, which as fans, maybe we don't want to see, but as riders, you know, it, it's it's working. Mm. It's, it's an interesting point of, of uh, discussion because, as you say, as fans, we probably remember more fondly the, the glorious attacks that sometimes end in failure than than we do the the cold calculating winners you know certainly of course we went we remember armstrong and enderin because that you know they've got seven and five two or victories each behind them but mm. we don't really remember them with and i hesitate to say this any great fondness but because of the way they went about their their victories and and i wonder just in, in trying to kind of look at the future of the sport whether there's some way that the sport can be organized in order to properly compensate and and reward those glorious attacks that sometimes as you say end in in failure yeah i i like just thinking off the top of my head like i don't know how they would uh, encourage that type of riding i don't know maybe maybe it'd have a massive time bonus with 3k to go on the final mountain stage or you know mm. something as outrageous as that but uh the, the fact of the matter is that the two most prominent riders coming into the tour are these diesel engines and you know that's not the race organizer's fault it's not the tour route planner's fault that's just that's just the way it is yeah. i mean there could be another year where or, or you know two years ago the two favorites coming into the tour were andy schlecken and, and contador and and we were speaking a whole lot differently about about the tour. I, I think it's just ups and downs. It depends on the riders coming into it. But a, another interesting thing about Cadell Evans um, is, is uh, yeah, you know, I, I've seen it written in places that he, he is this uh, like poster child for anti-doping. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I, I don't know whether that's quite true. I, I think there, you know, it is in some ways and in some ways it isn't. I mean, he had close ties with Aldo Sassi, who was the, the, from the Map A training center, and he, he he had a great name as this great anti-doping advocate, and uh, you know Evans was was closely tied with him throughout the, the, the last years of his career and the last years of Sassy's life as well. He he, he died last year, mm. but but um, you know he 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 has never. He has never been embroiled in any anti-doping controversies, which is which is great. But then there was this there was this thing last year after he won the Tour de France in the press conference. I'm not sure who asked him the question, and uh, I, I can't even remember what the question was. I think it was just basically asking him to comment on uh, on doping in general. I, I don't know. It was a fairly general question. And Evans, as the new Tour winner who had previously been quite squeaky clean or, or very squeaky clean, you know, this was an opportunity for him to say yes. You, you know. I, I, I don't dope. I, I despise everybody who does. This is a victory for clean cycling. I can guarantee you that I am clean and, and you can you can celebrate this as a clean victory. But he just completely chose to avoid that moment. And instead, he said something like, uh, I don't think I'm the right person to comment on that or I don't think I'm in the position to comment on that. Well, sorry, Cadell, like if you're in the yellow jersey, you're just after winning it and you, you, you are supposedly clean cyclists, you are exactly the person in that position to be speaking about that. And I think he really missed an opportunity there. And I mean, I, I don't mean to suggest that it should call into question his cleanliness. But, you know, if, if guys like that who are clean aren't going to take that opportunity, you know, it, it, it's it's disappointing as a fan to to see that and to see the reluctance to to lambast the dopers, you know. Yeah, I, I remember a lot of people being, you know, raising the the Roger uh, Roger Moore eyebrow of disbelief that he was so uh, so cagey in his response at that um, press conference. I mean, I think in in Cadell's defence, and I'm like yourself, I'm not wishing to call into question Cadell's approach to 
doping or otherwise. I, I just think that, that Cadell's not... He has a reputation for being quite a prickly character when it comes to the, the press. I think he's mellowed in the past couple of years. Uh, I, I remember the, you know, the journalist who, at the end of one stage after he'd had a shoulder injury, very lightly reaching across to try and ask him a question and his microphone happened to touch the, the shoulder and he he just about tore the guy's head off. Um, yeah. But I, I think... I, I don't think Cadell deals too too well with the press, and I, I don't think he comes across well. And, and I think what he was trying to say is, why the hell are you asking me? I've never doped. I have no knowledge of how you would even go about doping. Therefore, that's why I'm not the person to ask. But of course, that came across as this un- un- unwillingness to nail his colours to the mast. And, and uh, like you say, be the poster boy, say, celebrate this when it's been done entirely clean. There are no questions to be asked here. And, you know, I'm an open book when it comes to doping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it does have have to do with some PR, uh, inability to to deal with the PR side of things. So from that point of view, like, if Bradley Wiggins does win the the tour, I I think it'd be very interesting to to hear Wiggins' answer to... Uh, he'll undoubtedly get asked a similar question if he does win. It'd be interesting to hear his answer because uh, there have been claims that Wiggins has, has uh, you know, he's kind of, he's lo- lowered his uh, tone of anti-doping in the last couple of years uh, for whatever reason. And uh, it, it would be uh, interesting to hear his answer to that question. Mm. But uh, and just m- moving away from the from the doping for a moment, another interesting thing about Cadell Evans' career in general is that he did start off as a mountain biker. And uh, I, I don't know about anybody else, but I always find it fascinating that a, a professional cyclists who do try and juggle two disciplines and, you know, eventually the decision they make and crossing over between the two. I, I always find that very, very interesting. Like, I know I, I, I find it very interesting with the, the cyclocross riders. Like, Lars Boom is the classic example. He, he's probably been the most successful in the, in the last few years to come out of cyclocross. He was cyclocross world champion a few years ago, and now you know I, I think he I think he won a stage of the Vuelta, and you know he he'll probably win a stage or two of the Tour eventually. He, he's he's very strong, but um, I'm just I I I I, uh, I wonder whether that that type of rider or that the decision to, to move from one distance to to another is uh, is kind of dying out as well. I mean you don't really see it that much. And it used to happen an awful lot. Like riders would do the track in the winter and and, and a bit of cyclocross in the winter and return to road racing in 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 the spring. And uh, that doesn't really happen anymore. You know, riders avoid the track because you know they could get injured. They're they're not that experienced with it, and and they just don't bother. They just they'd rather go to you know training camps mm. in the Mediterranean in, in, instead. And uh, I, I, it's just like I, I think the prime example, the couple of prime examples at the moment are obviously Wiggins again. I mean, he started off at the track. And uh, and Gareth Thomas and and a lot of the British guys and and Jack Bobridge as well. I mean, he's expected to do really well in the Olympics this year. And but he, he as well. And uh, I I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the guys that do cross over now between track and road are Br- British and Australian. And I think that's because they, they these two those two countries seem to have an obsession with the Olympics a little bit more than other countries. And uh, I, I wonder whether I wonder how how long that will last because there's no money really in the Olympics, you know, and and the, all the money is is to be made on the road really. And uh, I I just um, I, I I would wonder 
whether we will see a, a bit of a, an, another fall off. There's already been a fall off since the 50s and 60s and 70s, but uh, w- whether it will kind of take another downturn and whether um, writers just w- won't bother trying to do or take part in two disciplines anymore because uh, this just this uber focused racing where riders are just focused so much on one particular race at one particular time of year that just trying to do too many things at once is just impossible or you know it's not impossible but it's unbelievably difficult in in uh, a sport where most riders don't try and do that so Mm. you're kind of shooting yourself in the by by trying to spread yourself thin which is what Cadell Evans said in in 2002 you know he had to choose ultimately he had to choose he, he couldn't do it anymore and uh, especially in the last couple of years, uh, th- apart from Lars Boom, the other cyclocross rider that's tried to do it is Denek Stibar from Quickstep. He he was he just completely dominated cyclocross for two years and m- moved over to the road. And now he's not really dominating cyclocross and he's not really winning races on the road. You know, he he's he's not fantastic at either anymore instead of being fantastic at one and ignoring the other. So uh, I, 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 I just find those... Parallels fascinating, and I wonder will it will it wane in the years to come? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think that it is now too difficult to try and do two things uh, and be the best at, at both because there is so much focus and so much attention given to either discipline, or it requires that laser like uh, focus and discipline for for any given event. I, I do think that we'll see more riders coming from mountain biking to to road in in the future and i think the road guys or traditional road guys are going to get a fright because now that we have seen people like cadell evans and rasmussen coming from mountain biking making well apart from the career of michael rasmussen a successful career um in in road i think there'll be a lot more guys willing to willing to try it and i think a lot of the road guys will get a fright at how good these mountain bikers actually are on on a bike yeah i mean we saw it last week when or a couple of days ago frederick kesiakoff beat fabian cancellara in his own backyard which which was impressive and i think kesiakoff is a little bit older you know he's not one of these younger guys but uh yeah it will be interesting Um, i i I always find it interesting when when that happens and you see you see a guy from another discipline beating beating an expert in, in, in something else entirely it's it's uh it's very, it's always fascinating yeah right let's move on to your your final piece for for this week in 1968 lucian imar won the french road race championship imar spent the first year of his professional career 1965 working as a domestique for jacques Anquetil. at that time Anquetil was coming to the end of his reign as tour de france champion and the cycling world would soon be blitzed by a rider called eddie Merckx. but in 1966 Anquetil's final tour, the roles were reversed and Anquetil would end up working for his 23-year-old teammate Lucien Aymar. Inexplicably, Aymar ended up in a mid-race breakaway which gained a lot of time. And as it became obvious to Anquetil that he himself stood little chance of winning, he began concentrating on the next best thing, ensuring that his old rival Raymond Poulidor also stood little chance of winning. So Anquetil spent the rest of the race shepherding Aymar around France, eventually sealing the win for Aymar in only a second appearance at the race. Another French rider, Roger Walkoviak, had won the Tour 10 years previously in a similar fashion. Walkoviak seemed to wilt under the spotlight and the accusations of an undeserved victory. Imar, evidently a stronger character, would not befall the same fate and showed his strength in the 1968 French National Championships. Again, 
Imar was due to ride for leader Jacques Anquetil, and midway through the race, the pair found themselves in the winning breakaway, along with Raymond Poulidor, Roger Pingin, and Gilbert Bellone. Imar sensed that Pingin was about to attack, and told Anquetil so. But Anquetil informed Imar then that he had heavy legs and he would be incapable of responding to any attack. Pingin duly attacked, and Imar, free to ride his own race, quickly got onto his wheel and the two riders went clear. After 80 kilometres out front together, it came down to a sprint which Imar won to claim the tricolour jersey of French champion. Imar said it was the one victory which he holds more dear than the Tour de France. The previous year at the French National Championships in 1967, the race was won by Desiree Latour, but after the race, Latour tested positive and was disqualified. The second place finisher that day was Lucien Imar. Subsequently, the French Cycling Federation sent Imar the national champion's jersey, but he refused to wear it out of principle. Imar said that he didn't see it as doping that had beaten him, but Desiree Latour. He was fined 500 francs for each day that he raced without wearing the national champion's jersey, until eventually, in 1968, he won it fair and square. Okay, so back to 1968 there, and your first note on this piece is, was it indeed fair and square? (laughs) Well, I I think the reason I put those words in at the end was uh, to to spark this debate that, you know, was Imar's victory in 1967 not fair and square? I mean, if the guy in front of you got caught for cheating, then you you are the winner, fair and square. And I think this again goes back to uh to, to to bleat on about about doping again and um, you know if if a guy in front of you dopes and gets caught then surely you should be celebrating and and you know i know it's a bit of a hollow victory but when riders get awarded victories and say no i don't, I don't want this win I, don't, I i didn't deserve this then immediately as fans you would look at the the the, the guy who inherited the win and say well why like, why do you not want this win? And the the conclusion that you have to come to that, it, or, 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 you know, one of the conclusions that you could come is that this guy's doped as well, and he doesn't deserve <laughs> to win because he he was just the guy that didn't get caught. He's not you, the guy that didn't dope. Yeah, he's the second and, and, best and doper, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it really grates on me when riders try and, and uh, shy away from these inherited wins. I know it's not the way they wanted to win, but again, like we said with Cat 11s, this is an opportunity. If you do inherit a win from the, the disqualification of a doper, it's an opportunity to say, yes, I won. The doper didn't. He got caught. Brilliant. Clean cycling, you know, th- this, is, this, is, this is a victory for clean cycling. And if they don't say that, immediately aspersions will be cast. And rightly so, I think. You know, these guys, you know, we, we always... Like we look at them and they're cyclists and, and, and that's what they are primarily. But, you know, they do have this secondary obligation to to spin the, the PR wheel. Like they're 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 riding around with these brands on their on their jerseys. They're 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 mobile posters. Yeah. Like I, I think it's a brilliant point. I've, I've never actually thought about it in, in that that way before because like I suppose everybody else, you see people who are inheriting uh, victories and obviously the one that's that's leaping to mind is is Andy, and uh, yourself you think oh well nah that's that's a tour that really didn't have a winner but when you put it in those terms you're absolutely right Andy Schleck should be celebrating and saying this this is actually a victory for for clean cycling I raced that that particular tour 
absolutely clean. The other guy didn't, therefore I, I, I won it. Um, and of course, if you're reaching for the conclusion that, you know, Andy Schleck was the, the best doper who didn't get caught, you got, you got to say, Andy Schleck really needs to be looking at the dope that he's on because it's, it doesn't seem to be doing him too much good. No. Your, your next note here is on domestic two wins. Yeah, it, it's like, um, it's 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 interesting as well. I mean, this was another. Uh, we talked about it previously. This was another tour between dynasties. You know, Anka Deals was coming to an end, and Merckx obviously they didn't know Merckx was going to come along. But you know, Merckx had yet to had yet to burst onto the scene and, and win all his tours. So there there does seem to be always the, the you know Anka Deal, Merckx, uh, Eno, Le Mans to to a lesser extent, and then Indrain and Armstrong. You know, there are these periods of absolute dominance, and then there are these two or three or four years in between where there isn't really a dominant rider and the opportunity is there for maybe a, a you know, a, a lesser guy. And, you know, you're never a lesser guy if you win the tour, but, you know, these less heralded riders to to take this opportunity and to win the Tour de France. And, uh, you, you know, um, like I said in the piece, like Imar was supposed to be Angel's domestique in that tour. And that's often how these, these riders come to the fore, that, you know, there are these tours where, Take, for instance, uh, Miguel Indurain. You know, in 1991, he was still riding for Pedro Delgado. And Pedro Delgado was supposed to be the the, the leader. I mean, he had won the Tour a couple of years beforehand. And, and Indurain was supposed to be riding for Delgado. And, and then the usual thing happens. Delgado capitulates. Indurain finds himself much, much higher up on GC. And all of a sudden, the roles are reversed. And it's Indurain that's riding for the GC. And he took his opportunity. And, uh, you know, the, the similar thing happened to Le Mans. I mean, it was kind of more complicated by the fact that Mental. Eno was probably still... <laughs> and and he was probably still capable of of winning the tour himself but uh you know a similar thing happened Le Mans was you know became he was in the yellow jersey and you know whether he rode for Le Mans or not is is a massive debate but he kind of did and uh and and the same thing happened with Fignon with Eno as well you know Fignon was supposed to be riding the tour for Eno in 1983 and uh, I don't actually think, you know, started the tour at all. He got injured right beforehand. And, and there kind of really wasn't a leader on Fignon's team that year. And he took the opportunity and he dominated that tour. So um, it, it, it is a manner in which riders can, uh, you know, usurp their their leader. And again, just kind of t- thinking of this year, like Andy Schleck is gone. Uh, th- there are riders on Radio Schleck Nissan that are capable of winning the tour. I mean, they're not young and, and they're not... Uh, uh, they're probably not exciting, but uh, you know, you'd wonder whether one of those will take the opportunity to to take control of the headless monster of the team now and and uh, assert their own dominance on the race. So I, I I don't think they will, but you know, the the opportunity is there again in one of these transitional tours where uh, it's um, it's very very open. Absolutely, and I think this year will will be one of those ones that we remember for for exactly those reasons. We will put it. Um, like you know, Sastra's Yeah, yeah. I, I just I put this note in just because the all the national well, most of the national championships are taking place next weekend, just before the Tour de France. And uh, actually, I should uh, I, I should do my usual uh, um, 
asterisks to, to, to the to the This Week in Cycling History moniker that uh, th- this race, this national championship in 1968 actually didn't take place <laughs> this week in cycling history. That year it took place after the Tour de France. So uh, just to cover my own back, uh, I've got a little bit lax <laughs> on, on, on when, when things happen. But it's topical, so <laughs> you know, I, I hope people don't hold it too much against me. But So the national championships are, are this weekend. And uh, if you get a chance to watch them, uh, most, of the, most of the major ones anyway, I say major, I mean like the French one and the Italian one and Belgian, uh, they do get streamed live on the internet. They won't be on Eurosport or anything, but they'll be streamed. And they can be unbelievably exciting races. I mean, like so much is made of the World Championships road race every year, and rightly so, because you get this jersey at the end of it. I mean, you get the, the rainbow jersey for the entire year, which is amazing. But the national championships ultimately is the same. I mean, it's slightly less prestigious, but you, you do get this jersey for the year. And, you, you know, you, you suddenly become kind of much more prominent and much more, uh, I don't know, much more interesting to watch almost because you're wearing this jersey. And uh, the, the racing can be unbelievably exciting. And they're very unusual races in that, you know, in the Tour of France, every every team has nine riders and that's just the way it is. And for all the other stage races throughout the year, um, most of the time teams have eight riders. So all the teams are, are equal. Whether their riders are equal or not is another story, but numerically they're all equal. Whereas with the national championships, you can get this incredible dominance of a team. Like, you know, for the British road race now on, on the weekend, like Team Sky will have, I, I don't know, maybe they'll have nearly 20 riders, or 15 anyway, I'd say. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it becomes this Team Sky against everybody else race. And it's fascinating to watch. And the same, the same will probably be true for, uh, you know, maybe, maybe to a slightly lesser extent in the other races, like the the, the the Italian one. Like there'll be loads of liquid gas riders and lamprey riders, and then there'll be loads of these pro continental guys who who just really, really want to sock it to the pro tour guys. Yeah. And um, it, it's it's really interesting to watch these uh, lesser riders with, with sometimes with no teammates. Uh, versus these guys who have 15 teammates trying to dominate the race and uh it it, it is really really interesting to watch so if, if if anybody gets a chance to sit down and watch them on the weekend i'd highly recommend it, it it's uh, it's very exciting uh, just talking about um national championships of course the, the news that that has come um regarding the french nationals is that thomas vaukler is out which of course is going to put his his tour de france participation in doubt as well yeah, and that that's, I mean, if that's really sad because Vokler, I mean, last year was just incredible to watch him. It was, uh, he, it was the, 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 the performance of the race, I would say. I mean, I know he didn't win it, but uh, again, as fans, like we said earlier, it's, it's almost more interesting to watch these spectacular failures than to, than to watch, watch the guy grinding his way to the win and, mm. and Vokler's, it, it was a spectacular failure. I mean, he, he, he defied all expectations by holding onto the yellow jersey as long as he did. And um, I mean, it would certainly have been a less interesting race if Vokler wasn't in it. And, uh, you know, he, he, um, he's remembered now as this guy who, who wore the yellow jersey last year and in 2004 for, yeah. for over a week. But in every other race he's in, he, 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 he's unbelievable to watch. He, he's just absolute rides with this reckless abandon. And uh, I, I know myself and John have talked about it before that, um, you know, there's this whole debate about the race radios. But in my opinion, uh, something that has uh, a bigger effect on races and, and, you know, whether they're boring or not, is riders are allowed cycling around with power meters in front of them. And, and you know, like in the Tour de France now in the summer, Evans and Wiggins will be riding up a mountain with a power meter in front of them. 
And, uh, you know, say say somebody goes on the attack like Valverde or, or Robert Hessink or so, somebody attacks on a mountain. All Evans has to do is look down at his power meter and say, oh, I'm going at this amount of watts. I know if I try if I try and follow that guy, I'm going to blow up. So I won't. I'll I'll just keep going on my own pace at the power that I know I can go at at this gradient. And maybe I'll get back to him. If I do, I do. If I don't, I don't. But I'm not going to take the risk. Mm-hmm. And, and that has become this this model for climbing mountains, I think, in the last few years for, for some people. But Vockler, I think, famously doesn't ride with a parameter. And it really shows. And, yeah. you know, sometimes like if somebody attacks and, and, and a lot of the time it's it's Vockler, um, you know, that they, I think you have to ignore the power that you're putting out. You're taking a risk. You're taking a gamble. Maybe, maybe you you will have the legs. You know, you probably didn't in training, and 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 in training you, you can't put a, an extra ten watts at this gradient. But you know, you know, maybe you can. And and that's this this really excitement that Fokker brings to the tour and to every other race is that uh, he doesn't seem to care whether he blows up or not. If he do, if he does. Then, then he does. He'll try it again next week. But if he doesn't, it's fantastic, and he takes the win, and it's brilliant. And and that having not having him in the tour would definitely take away from the race slightly, especially because he's this French favorite, and you know they don't really have a, a guy to be cheering on for for the GC. For so for him not to be there is a big big blow for the race in general and for the French. Absolutely, uh, you you would imagine that, or you would hope rather that uh, Pierre Roland is gonna gonna step up. And, yeah, well, that, and, and be you know the, the next next Thomas Thomas Vockler if, if if Tommy himself isn't isn't there this year, um. So you heard it here first, but folks, uh, ban power meters. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I think we should probably wrap the uh, wrap this week's show up. Uh, thanks to Killian, uh, thank you for joining us for this edition of this week in cycling history, and also to people who have either donated or contributed to the show via subscriptions. If you'd like to join them, you can do so by visiting our website at velocast.cc and clicking on the sponsor link. Uh, you can follow myself on Twitter at velocast. Uh, John in absentee is so at sofa boy and Killian is at Irish Peloton. Hope you all have a great week and join us again soon for another edition of This Week in Cycling History. This Week in Cycling, a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener.